one of my favorite songs by Peter Gabriel. He wrote that song to his daughter during a time the two of them were not talking. And saying, I know we disagree, I know we have conflict, but can't we just, can we please just talk to me. I can imagine a time that we're going to have a breakthrough. I can imagine a time we're going to say the right thing and at least begin to rebuild our relationship. But right now we're not there. So please come to the table. Today in our series, Drawing Board, we're going to talk about how to fill ourselves up with the resources we need to be able to have the kind of compassion, the kind of patience, the kind of unconditional love to deal with conflict in our relationships, whether it's between friends, a father and a daughter, spouses or family members or co-workers. I don't know about you, but my wife and I, when we have arguments, they seem to rhyme. The argument we're having sounds a lot like the argument we had last night or last week or last year. It's like the same topics come up, the same bad patterns come up. And I remember a fight we were having several months ago. My wife said, honey, I'm doing the best I can. I have nothing else to give. And I went from being angry to compassionate, thinking, wow, it is amazing how life and circumstances work. The typical workday squeezes all the good out of you, and you end up with leftovers for the people you care about the most. In fact, the last couple of months, uh, apparently one of the, the new uh, dynamics of our marriage is that I've been snoring the last couple of years. So in order to uh, try and be a decent husband, I've been uh, putting, a, putting the CPAP machine on every night. And if you don't know what a CPAP machine is, you, know, you basically this auction mass that hooks into this pump that pumps somewhere between 2 to 12 uh, PSI into your throat as you're, as you're sleeping. And so I'm putting this thing on at night, and Beth's getting ready. She comes in. I say, good night, honey. And she's like, what? And I feel like Bane from Batman. You were born in the darkness. I have adjusted to the darkness. A little Darth Vader going on. And I don't realize the pressure's been going up. So as I'm trying to talk to her, I'm now screaming, Good night, honey, I love you! And she, what? I can't hear you. So finally, I take the CPAP off. And, you don't realize how much the pressure's been going up as it's been adjusting. So, Good night, honey, I love you! <laughs> Have you ever used a leaf blower to sort of clean, clean off the garage? Imagine taking that leaf blower and shoving it into your mouth, turning it on, and having a good night's sleep. That's, that's pretty much what the experience has been like. But it reminded me, whether it's the, the, the true sad moments, where you're like, man, we really aren't giving each other our best, or the funny moments where we're laughing at having a leaf blower in our mouth, today we're going to see through a book of the Bible called 2 Corinthians how Paul and a group of dear friends have a pretty severe conflict. And they're writing letters back and forth to deal with that, to say, let's talk through this, let's talk through this, and let's find the resources we need for our relationships from the God who made both of us. So let's go back to the Bible for a moment and back to the drawing board and give you a quick summary of the intro to 2 Corinthians and the conflict that's occurring then how we can solve it. Let's watch. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bible, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. 
Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all, of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. So there we begin with the painful visit, this conflict. And we come across the uh, main point, I think, for today is this. It's hard to give what you don't have. Very similar to what my wife said several months ago. Think of your life, think of your heart as a gauge, maybe as a fueling station. Or, since we're from Cincinnati, think of it as a microbrewery. <laughs> and as you think about, often what happens is that you start the day full and you often end the day empty. And because of that, it's not that you don't want to, it's just that when it comes to the last moments of the day, you end up not having a lot to give. There's just a couple of drips left, and it, it's hard to give what you don't have. So part of what Paul's going to do with the Corinthians is describe how do we get our tanks full enough, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, so that we don't just have a few drips left at the end of the day for the people we love. How do we organize our life and protect our best energies and find places to fill ourselves up so that we can have overflowing resources, but it's because we really need to fill the tank. The issue isn't fighting over whether or not I have a drip left or not. The issue is, how do I keep that tank full? He's going to show us how. Then he's going to move to a second section where he's going to talk about not only can you not give what you don't have, but we also shouldn't hoard what's been given to us. So imagine you're hanging out with your kids, maybe it's your grandkids and they're young, and you give them a box full of cookies. And we'll make them chocolate chip cookies, because I like chocolate chip cookies. And they've got some friends coming over. And so you give them a whole bowl full of chocolate chip cookies. And these are delicious. And you notice that having given them, you bought the cookies, you gave it to them, that they're not sharing with their friends. In fact, you, you start hearing from your grandkids words like, they're my cookies. And you're thinking, your cookies? What are you talking about? I just bought these things for you. I gave them to you a second ago, and you now feel entitled to something that you didn't even own until 12 seconds ago. And you're like, oh my goodness, isn't that the problem with the human condition? If you do have an overflow of energy, of patience, of kindness, of forgiveness, and it's been given to you by someone else, then we shouldn't hoard or hold back from giving unto others that which was given to us. 
So it's an interesting combination in this passage today because you have both going on. The reality that you can't give what you don't have, but you also can't or shouldn't hoard what's been given to you. And Paul says one one of the first things in the first chapter is in order to comfort other people, it's easier to comfort somebody else if you've been comforted already. In other words, it's easier to pass on what you've received. And so before you say, I'm just worn out of patience, I'm worn out of compassion, I'm worn out of... I need to find a resource to fill myself up because it'll be easy for me to comfort, to listen, to forgive if I have access to being filled up by somebody who's given me comfort, love, and forgiveness. Now here's how he says it in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. He says, Blessed be the Lord God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercy. Now keep in mind the word mercy means not giving somebody what they deserve. That's mercy. I know what you deserve, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you the opposite. I'm going to be kind when you're irritable. I'm going to be forgiving when you're sort of mean-spirited. And our God of the Bible is the Father, the motherlode of all mercy. He's the God of all comfort. And He comforts us when we go through tribulations, but not just for our own sake. God comforts us so that we will be able to comfort those who are in trouble. Because I want to fill you up with comfort, and I want you to know what it feels like to have my comfort. But I want you to be filled up with my comfort so that you will extend that comfort to other people in trouble, other people in difficulty. I want you to pass on my comfort. Think of it this way. Imagine God, since I can't draw a good picture of God, I'll draw a cloud. God always ends up being a cloud. I'm not sure why that is, but here's our cloudy God. And God says, and what Paul's telling us, is that the God of the Bible is the God of all comfort. And that God of comfort wants to pour down empathy, unconditional love, patience, wisdom, strength when you're going through difficulty, but not just for your own sake, not just so you can say, whew, I made it, I made it through that mess. Think of it like a funnel that God wants to pour into you the resources you need to feel loved, to feel strengthened, so that we will take the comfort he offered to us and we will rain it down on others, like a showerhead, that we will extend to our spouse when they don't deserve our patience, that we will be as merciful to them as God was to us. When somebody doesn't deserve your forgiveness, you say, I didn't deserve it either. When somebody needs you to be there for them in the moment, you say, God was there for me in my moment. And you begin to connect the dots between what I do unto others comes from what God did unto me. And if you're running out of resources for your family, for your friends, for your kids, you could try harder. You could, but it's hard to give what you don't have. Instead, God says, I want you to reflect on me. I want you to be filled up with me, with my comfort, so you can extend that to other people. And it's a very other-centered approach where you can simultaneously be filled by God and then say, but ultimately God is comforting me and strengthening me so that I can extend that to other people. That's his desire here. That's his, his call here. That's his challenge here. I saw an interview last week by uh, Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook. And she described the moment 
when she came to the hotel on vacation and found her husband had died of some kind of heart condition. And now her whole world was rocked with two small children. She said, I had no idea how to be a single mom. I had no idea how to be a grieving spouse in my 30s. And she said, because of that, I was angry, I was irritable, and I was sad, and I just didn't know how to cope. And many of my friends were so tired of sort of putting up with me. She said, I even had one friend that said to me, you're just too sad and too mad to be around these days. She said, one day I was with another friend and I was just really angry and really irritable and just sniping at my friend for no real reason related to them. Just I had all this gack in me, all this anger in me. And as I yelled at her, not really mad at her, just yelled at her, she put her arms around me and she said, I'm mad too! And I'm sad too that this has happened. And in her book, Lean In, she describes the people who leaned in and extended her comfort. And that during the time she most needed comfort, there were a few people that got it right. And she was so impacted by the way people comforted her, she said, it's totally changed the way I see my coworkers. I now want to extend to others the kind of comfort that's been extended to me. Jesus says it this way. He says, blessed are those who mourn. And you're like, oh, how can be blessed to mourn? For when you allow yourself to grieve, you can be comforted. And grieving is not just for death. We had a funeral here last Friday of just a tragic friend who died who used to sit right here in the second row for seven years. Good friend of mine. We grieve transitions. We grieve our health transitions. We, we grieve the loss of our hair. We grieve the loss of our competence. We grieve relationships that aren't what we hoped they were. The, the, the practice of grieving is important. There's many things in life that are tribulations that you're going to need to learn how to grieve and teach our kids how to grieve and teach those around us how to grieve, how to be with people in the moment. Because life is hard. It'll kick you in the teeth. Three years ago, about this weekend, I was blubbering up here because my daughter, I sent her off to college. She's now a senior. And my son, uh, we had sent him off to college yesterday a little less crying because he's here at University of Cincinnati, so we get to see him more often. But I told my daughter, I told both my kids actually, as you grow up, every summer I'm going to ask you when we get together, have you learned some way that dad and mom screwed you up? <laughs> and they laughed. It's like you laughed. And I said, no, I'm serious because we have done our best, but we have made a lot of mistakes, and I want to be part of the healing process of helping own what I did wrong and, and set you up for success. So this summer, my daughter was home, and one of the great conversations we had sitting in the hot tub was, all right, I told you I'd ask you, what have you learned this year that I've made a mistake in that I can own? And she said, well, Dad, you did a great job. I said, thank you for that. We're not talking about that right now. What did I do wrong? She said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to a counselor for last year. I said, well, that's awesome. Um, you know, as long as you're going to get fixed from our mistakes, start early. Uh, she goes, no, I've really been learning how to set better boundaries. And, and I said, honey, that, I'm so proud of you for that. She said, one of the things I realized is I've never really learned how to grieve well. Because when I was a, a kid, every time I got hurt or every time I was sad, you would immediately do something to make me laugh. And I thought, oh, that is so true. And that wasn't wrong all the time. But I realized I wasn't helping her learn how to grieve and process sadness. That it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to 
to not be happy with how something's going. And so we just had this great talk. I said, you know, I realized that about four years ago, and I started to make a transition where we talked about things as a family, and I didn't always try and just laugh our way out of it. And we just had this great moment of learning how to grieve and learning how to talk about stuff that's not going well. And what God is telling us is he wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to learn how to be unhappy, how to comfort ourselves, how to be comforted by him in the midst of that, how to receive his wisdom in the midst of that, so that we then know that when we're with somebody who's sad, instead of just trying to fix it, which I happen to like that about myself, we also know how to just be there with people who are just broken. Man, there's nothing you can fix here. And when a spouse needs you to listen and you want to fix it's hard to know how to do that if it's never been done to you. And so receiving from God that he just wants to be with you in the moment can be powerful because then you say, well, my spouse doesn't deserve, my son doesn't deserve, my coworker doesn't deserve. Perfect. If they don't deserve it, that's exactly what we're talking about, extending mercy to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And you're not going to extend mercy to somebody who doesn't deserve it unless you realize you've been extended mercy when you didn't deserve it. I mean, how many times when you're having a conflict, you say to yourself, I tried harder, I did my best, I went harder, this is the last time, I'm not going to initiate this time, it's your turn, it's your turn, it's your turn, you don't deserve, you don't deserve. In fact, our conversations about how you don't deserve and I do deserve. What if instead you said, God, you gave me stuff when I didn't deserve it, and I'm going to forgive my son when he doesn't deserve it. I'm going to be patient with my wife when she doesn't deserve it. I'm going to extend the hand of reconciliation to my business partner when he doesn't deserve it. That's what it means to take the comfort from God and extend it to others. Now, the next section of 2 Corinthians, he moves on from not just receiving comfort, but receiving service. When somebody has served you well, you're able to serve other people well. Let's watch. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is, Jesus. But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. One of the biggest problems in my relationships is that I don't have enough self-giving love. I've got a lot of, I'll give as long as I get. But Paul's saying God wants to fill you up with a self-giving love so you will have the capacity that you've felt and experienced somebody else's self-giving love so that you have those same resources to give to the people in your relationship. And what he's going to show here is actually the main message of the Bible. And it's interesting that the main message of the Bible is one that most people miss. Because here in 2 Corinthians, he's going to basically describe how God offers mankind a peace treaty and this peace treaty can only be experienced when you realize you've been at war right who needs a peace treaty if you're not at war and for many of us we've grown up telling ourselves that we are basically good people 
Yeah, God and I, we're doing great. I'm like this. He's the crooked one. (laughs) We don't have a sense that there's a real war going on in ourselves, that we want our own agenda, not God's agenda. And we get married thinking we're basically good people. And we find out we are basically good people, as long as we get what we want. That there's a war of wills going on because we don't have enough self, other-centered love. We have a lot of self-giving love. And so God says, when you are at war with me, not wanting to do my thing, but wanting to do your own thing, I found a way to reconcile. And reconciliation is like a peace treaty. I'm going to take people who are estranged and reconcile them together. And one of the ways God served us is that instead of coming to earth and saying, I demand my own way, I'm God, do what I want, you're the peon, I'm God... He continually found ways to bring peace into circumstances, and he served us by giving of himself, by swallowing his pride. He didn't even have any pride to swallow. He swallowed his own rights. Many times an argument in a relationship is all about, I demand my rights. I shouldn't be treated like this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. And if you don't say it out loud, you say it to yourself all the time. At least I do. And what God is saying is that mindset is you serving yourself. And I had to die for that mindset. One of the ways I served you is I died for that self-centeredness. And I extended a peace treaty to you to say, I want to serve you by loving on you, reconciling with you, and pursuing you even when you didn't pursue me. I want to offer a peace treaty when you were at war with me. Well, if that becomes not just some theoretical idea... But if you begin to meditate on that, reflect on that, all the ways in which you don't deserve God's mercy, don't deserve his service, that you have warred against God, ignored God, minimized God, you start saying, wow, if this is true, and maybe you're not sure if it is, if it's true, God has served me really well. He loved me when I didn't deserve it. He was patient with me when I was not really that worthy of patience. He was kind to me when I was pretty irritable. And when you receive that, how well God served you, it fills your tank up. So then next time you're around somebody who is impatient and irritable and doesn't deserve forgiveness and doesn't deserve to be served, you serve them well, not because they deserve it, but because somebody served you well. Here's how Paul says it. Therefore we make it our aim, our goal, our life purpose, whether we're present with you or whether we're absent because he was in a different city, that we want to be well-pleasing to him, the one who served us. See, we're going to all have to appear one day before the judgment seat of, of God and give an account for our life, that each one may receive the things done in the body. God's going to reward us for how we treat other people. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, so that what? So that he could give us the ministry of reconciliation. He's like, what's a ministry of reconciliation? That sounds like pastors do or priests do. No, he's talking to regular people. That every one of us is called to the ministry of reconciling. That when you have a fight with your spouse, bringing repair attempts to put it back together. You have a disagreement between your kids. You're trying to teach them how to have a ministry of reconciliation. How do you take blame? How do you admit fault? How do you bring peace back into the family? Peace back into the department? Peace back into the world? How do you look at the broken world with people who have not been served, not been cared for, instead of saying, hey, look at how much I've been given. I can't hoard what I've been given. I've got to serve others the way God served me. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine who 
is a volunteer in our children's ministry. Every week, volunteers in children's ministry. And he wants to serve your kids and my kids and your grandkids and my grandkids because he's been served so well by God in the church here. He said, this last week we had a chance to go down to Happy Church. A couple hours from here. It's one of the most impoverished areas in the country. And our church works with junior high teams and adult teams and family teams to go down and help the most impoverished people in the country just a few hours from here. He said, I went with my teenage daughter and we had the best time seeing real poverty and serving people. And though we felt a little bit good about ourselves, you know, a lot of times the people weren't thankful. Like, how can they not be thankful? Why should I keep serving people who aren't thankful? Because God served you and I when we weren't thankful. And we learned how to really serve and come together as a family and look at our own entitlement and our own brokenness as we learned to serve people who didn't deserve to be served. To, to be served. I remember sitting in the hearth room two years ago. One of our small group leaders had spent two years working with a very broken person, a woman in her life, really difficult past, very hard to be around, just very snippy and angry and blame and just tough person to be around. And this friend of mine had loved and loved and loved and been patient and kind and patient and kind. And the person she was helping called for a meeting of the elders. If you don't know, we have elders who are leaders of the church. I'm one of the elders and no one of our elders, Mike. So we sat in the hearth room together as this person threw accusation after accusation after accusation against this friend of mine who had poured out her life for the last two years to help her. And I watched my friend, who did not deserve this, who was being falsely accused, who had already given above and beyond to help this friend overcome a lot of junk from the past, continue to be kind, though hurt, patient, though in pain, to serve her by trying to listen and understand what she was saying, even when she stormed out of the room. What's going to motivate you and I to serve that? It's easy to serve. Hey, I felt really good about myself when I served. What's going to motivate you and I to serve when people are entitled or unthankful or just mean? Mother Teresa has this great quote that she had up in her office her whole life. People are unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind People will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you're going to win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. Be honest and sincere, and people will deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others can destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous, but be happy anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow, but do good anyway. Give the best you can, and it will never, ever be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And do you see how Mother Teresa could serve with her life? You think, oh, it must have been so great to be Mother Teresa. Look at her assessment of human beings. Irrational, self-centered, and unreasonable. I always thought to myself, you know, Mother Teresa gets all the press. You know what? It's easy to be selfless when you're not married. 
If Mother Teresa had been married, I would have a lot more respect for her. I mean, there's the real challenge. You know, go help the orphans in Calcutta. You know, try and be married to somebody equally as irrational and self-centered as yourself. We need to learn to serve the people here in our community, our work with City Gospel that we do, in our parish ministries. We need to serve people who are going to sometimes be entitled and not thankful. To go a couple hours away to one of the most impoverished places in the country and serve and help those who really have no resources at all and are being transformed by the work we're doing as a church. We need to go with the teams that we have, working with back-to-back and our medical partner teams. Say, I want to go on a mission trip. I want to give up a week of my vacation to let God maybe grab my heart in a new way with a new relationship to say, wow, God, I want to serve other people. And some of them are incredibly grateful. In fact, one of the amazing things, most of the times the people you find on foreign mission trips are so grateful, you're stunned at how grateful they are with having so little and how ungrateful we are with having so much. Which is why Paul transitioned to this last part. He says, it's also going to be easier to be generous when somebody's been generous to you. And he builds this in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Let's go back to the uh, drawing board and we'll watch. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, And he lowered himself to die like a poor slave so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. That's a good summary of those three chapters because I think for many of us when it comes to giving especially when it comes to money, we're used to the sandwich approach. You know, somebody's going to stick us in a vice, and there's going to be some clothes, and now that I'm talking about generosity, you start worrying. Is Chad going to have a big clothes here where he's going to pressure us, and there's going to be you know, pictures of kids on these mission trips, and they're going to make me feel guilty because I didn't give, and maybe they're going to come up and somebody's going to sing, I think to myself, what a wonderful world with kids who are dying. Is that what's going to happen here today? Because that's what I'm used to. When people want you to give, they stick you in a vice, and they stick you in this vice, and they just, we're going to get some money out of you, and we're going to make you feel guilty enough that eventually you'll give out of pure shame and guilt and say, wow, how could I not, how can I get out of here? And, and the coins are going to come out, and the money's going to come out, and I've just been squeezed out of me. The Bible has such a radical different approach. Now, religions don't always have a radical different approach. Nonprofits don't always have a different approach. But you hear what he said there in Corinthians? The reason we give... The reason we're motivated to be generous to other people, and that includes money, that includes missions, it also includes being generous with our, our patience, generous with our kindness, is not because we, we've gone through the squeeze. It's actually because we look at our life and we reflect on all the things God's given us. 
all the opportunities to make money. There's a verse in the Bible that says God has given you the ability to produce wealth. God has given us talents, ideas. God's given us time, one of the freest places in the country. And you look at everything God's given to you, and you reflect on his generosity to you. Then an added bonus if you're a Christian and you really begin to get the main message of the Bible, what he called the gospel or good news, is that God who owned the whole universe, omnipresent, all-powerful, put himself into a human body and became poor, a baby of a very impoverished family, so that you and I could be forgiven of our wrongdoing and we could be heirs, heirs to everything God has. That's what he's saying, that through his poverty, we could become rich. And our real resources are not within our bank account. That's like funny money compared to the real reservoir of being an heir to God, having access to all of his riches. And in light of everything he's given us, we say, how can I not pay this forward to other people? I want to be as generous to other people as God has been to me. And I hope they will then extend that forward to other people. And we don't start by saying, I've got to give. We start by saying, wow, look how much I've been given by God. And I'm so overwhelmed by that that my heart doesn't have to feel shame to. I want to give to others the way God has given to me. I want to pay forward his generosity in my life. And that becomes what Paul calls grace motivation for giving. You start by getting filled up by God's generosity, and then you extend that generosity to the people in your life. I can't hoard what's been given to me, becomes your mindset. I want to do unto others as God has done unto me. Here's how Paul says it. This I say, when you sow sparingly, meaning you don't give much to the people, you're going to reap sparingly, you're going to miss out. He who sows bountifully, invests in other people, is generous to other people, is going to reap bountifully. Let each one give as he is guilted by the pastor. No. Let each one give because you got to, everyone has to walk up front and put an envelope in, and if you don't, everybody's going to stare at you. No. Let each one give as he purposes in his own heart. And I, I've made a purpose to be generous to others the way God's been generous to me. And g- not grudgingly, not even of necessity. And I could put charts up here as the, the financial needs we have as a church, and I could show you about how 60-plus percent of the girls in Belize are earning in prostitution. And that would be legitimate. That would be totally legitimate to do. And there's times I give updates on that. But God doesn't even want us to give out a necessity. There's a, there's a need. He wants us to be motivated by His generosity to us, not by need or not by being stuck in a vice. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God, who is able to make all grace abound to you, and you're, you're always having all sufficiency in all things. See all those alls? God's saying, if you realize what God's offered you, you are on the, the air list of the God who owns the universe. And in light of how big your real reservoir is, in a place that moth can't destroy and rust can't touch, oh my goodness, you can give away this stuff in your bank accounts here on earth. That stuff doesn't last anyway. And every way you give from that account gives you more in the ultimate account that can't be touched. That's what it means to be a cheerful giver. You realize you're all-sufficient in all things because of God's generosity and want to extend that to others. Which one of the reasons why Horizon sometimes is unique because as a church, 
instead of sort of saying, everybody give your money to the church and then we'll sort of you know, divvy it out, we take more of an educational approach. We've got lots of things we do here, near, and far to give. But we really want to just educate you and inspire you to become generous people. To begin to think about, Horizon certainly is a place you give your time, give your money. Without a doubt, we've got expenses, we need your gifts. But instead of funneling all your money here and then we divvy it out like some central command, we want to inspire you to be generous people in your marriage, in your family, in your community, in the world. So you say, in light of everything God's given me, my network, my talents, how can I use these resources to bless the world uniquely? How can I live every day generously in light of what God has done for me? I want to give a percentage of my income. I want to give to God's priorities. One of them is the church, sure. One of them is the orphan. One of them is the widow. One of them is caring for people who are hurting. How can I prioritize myself the way God does? And how do I ever increasingly become progressively more generous each year of my life? As you do that, something powerful happens. You begin to realize that you're so filled up as you reflect on it that you can't hoard what's been given to you. There's two key takeaways I want you to think about. Number one, if you don't reflect on what you have and really realize how much God's given you, you're not going to realize how much resources you have. And so part of the discipline in life is to reflect on how much God's given you and to ask God, God, pour more comfort into me. Remind me how much you've served me. Remind me how much you've forgiven me. You've got to reflect on what you had. And two, you've got to protect your time, so you don't end up just at the end of your day with no resources. How do I protect my time so I have something to give to my spouse, to my kids? How do I keep my tank filled by reflecting and asking God to fill me back up so I don't have leftovers for other people? But number two, did you know that insulated people never know they're insulated? Because we hang out with people just like us, they have cars like us, they go to schools like us, they do vacations like us, we don't realize we actually have created an insulated, gated community, and so we miss out on seeing real poverty and real hurt and real pain. And the only way to get out of your insulated life is to intentionally step out of your sphere of influence. Otherwise, you just won't know. I'll give you an example. My first year of marriage, I'm sitting in the kitchen. No, I'm sitting in bed at 7 in the morning, and I get a phone call. Ring! It's one of the kids from the youth group. I was a student pastor. Chad, are you okay? Yeah, okay. I'm tired. Your apartment building's on fire. No, it's not. Chad, like right now, I'm seeing it on the news. Your apartment building's on fire. This is before cell phones. I'm actually holding the phone on the wall. You got this long cord. Remember that dangly cord that always got caught and everything? I walk over to the back window. I'm like... Joseph, yeah, I got abducted by aliens too. As I pull the window open, fire truck, fire truck, fire truck, inflamed, inflamed, inflamed. I'm like, I need to call you back. My apartment's on fire. (laughs) I was insulated in my bedroom with the fan and noisemaker going that there was a fire going on around me I didn't even see or experience. We've got to intentionally step out to see the fires in the world or we're insulated in our comfort and we miss out on the chance to serve others. It's like you hear the story of somebody who's done just that. You've heard her story before, but we're going to give a little more details and update. Can you give a warm welcome to my friend Pam? Pam, come on up. Well, Pam, thanks for being with us again. How, I remember years ago, you were scared to death to go on a mission trip. You're like, oh my goodness. How has that experience changed your life and specifically increased your confidence in God over the years? Well, I remember when I first started coming to Horizon, I was baptized and it was 
such a wonderful change in my life. And I'd heard about the mission trip to Belize, um, so I went to a meeting. And I remember after that meeting, I didn't know John Kirby very well yet, but I remember after in that meeting John said, if you're kind of afraid or you're not sure, but there's a calling on your heart, that's God talking to you. I'm like, that's God talking to me? And um, I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm kind of scared. I don't really know anybody yet. It's been a long time since I've done anything in nursing, um, going to another country, but I'm going to go. And that changed my life in overcoming my fear and stepping out and doing something a little bit different in a different place with people I didn't know. Especially for such a big step. Some people it's a big deal to just go down to City Gospel, which we do every Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Some people it's a big deal to go you know, get a blue bag um, or you know, some of the gifts that we do at our giving tree every year. But that was pretty big to go from that to a mission trip. Mm-hmm. And during that time, any relationships you met that have continued to change you as you stepped out of that insulated life that you didn't even know you had? Yeah, absolutely, both relationships with the people I go with on the mission trip. So I've gone from not being sure what I would do to John giving me fancy titles each year. I think I'm the director of something now, (laughs) you know, but it was basically organizing supplies and helping new people coming on the trip and getting our staffing together. And the people I met in Belize that have become friends and family to me, but the people that we've been going year after year and actually looking at starting... Um, our own 501c3 and more people coming, going from just showing up and every year I do something different, but I have faith in that we'll figure out what to do. And so calling upon any talents or skills I've had from the past to serve the people there, but most importantly just to um, um, give whatever I can. Um, And that's what, you know, just show up with your hands and your heart. And that's what I really learned. Get out of your comfort zone, just show up. And one of the reasons I said we don't think we're smart enough to funnel your giving through Horizon because Pam's being humble here, but she was an administrator with TriHealth, and so part of coming back and seeing the lack of medical supplies, using her resources and her access to stuff we never thought of, you know, in like a few months she got tons of free medical supplies donated to third world countries because she got exposed to the need. And more than that, though, individually you came face-to-face with, with individual people that changed your yeah. life. Tell me yeah. about the yeah. Anita specifically. Yeah, so you see a picture Anita's the young girl in the middle, and there's Anita now. I met Anita the first year. We were in San Victor, um, um, and it was the last day, and we didn't have enough interpreters. And so John went over to the church and asked for, are there any of the older kids there, they're like 12, 13, that have really good English? And so Anita came over. She's very quiet and shy, and she was my interpreter that day. And whenever I would share, you know, a power bar or something with her, she always put it in her pocket and kept it. And then I met her family that day. She was saving it to share with them. And I learned that she wasn't going to be able to go on to school. And so I began sponsoring Anita. Now that's seven years ago. And um, every year, every year um, she's able to volunteer with me. She knows the people on the trip. She's in junior college now. And um, um, last year, she actually was able to work a whole weekend with us. I know her family. I visit her home. And um, we went from, she would start with sending me letters. And it would be, Dear Miss Pam Shannon. And then it would be, Dear Pam. And then it was, she was pretty cool, Hey, Pam. And now it's, it's Mom. She said, I asked my mother if I could call you Mom. And so I'll get choked up. But I get texts. We talk all the time. And I'm very privileged to be able to help her to go to school to have a better life. 
mm. but it's our relationship. Mm. I'll get texts at night. We'll be talking back and forth about her day and my day, and it never ends without, God bless you, Mom. I love you. Mm. Sweet dreams, Anita. That's one of the reasons why it'd be easy just to write a check, but your heart doesn't get changed. I mean, the, you know, I've written some checks that my heart was involved in. Um, there's a great thing about writing a, a big check, but there's something even more that happens when that check is connected to relationship. Yeah. And part of why we've been working in Belize for the last 15 years is we believe in long-term relationships. We get requests for like 100 different organizations every week, how we can support. We've tried to work with primary organizations, like only a few of them. City Gospel Mission, we've worked with them for 13 years. Interparish we've been working with now for the last seven. We've been working with Back to Back for 15 years. We want to have long-term partnerships. We can have long-term relationships. So part of what Pam and her team has done last year is have taken a, a, a legacy we've had the church working in Belize and turned into a 501c. So leaders from our church have said, I'm committed to taking this even to the next level. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what God might have in your life, but I would just encourage you. The reason we partner with these excellent organizations is because God can change you as you begin to love other people here, near, and far and become generous as you're really reflecting on the generosity God's done for you. Can we thank Pam for being here today? Well, that is, I hope for you, that you will see everyone in your life through God's eyes, to see hurting people that need to be served, to see irritable people that need to be loved, to see broken people who need to be mourned with, that we would be generous people. And if you... uh, are inspired by that and you want to take the same trip or the same kind of journey, feel free to talk to anyone on our, our team about back-to-back or the um, medical mission team, uh, the 51C that's being formed to go on a trip like that. If you came prepared to give financially and you're just loving the vision of the church and your own education, there's a place to give out there in the offering as well, as well as uh, giving uh, through online or by calling the office. So thanks for being here today. We appreciate it. We'll continue next week with part five of Back to the Bible.